Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we come before you in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, grateful to be reminded of the story of Christmas today and that you love us so much that you've pursued us. You sent your only begotten Son out of your love to save this world of sinners. And Father, we don't have to look far to recognize our own sinfulness and to see that sin reflected around us in the world in even very heinous and dramatic fashion. And so, Father, would you quiet our hearts today, and as we have our Bibles open and we study your word together, would you just renew our perspective and strengthen us in our faith, even give a growing confidence of your word and the clarity of it, and help us to just follow you in simple faith. Father, as we live this Christmas season, we want to be used by you. And would you begin to burden our hearts to have a proper perspective as to the real meaning of Christmas? And as there's so many things around us and even our own traditions and the world around us pressing us into its mold, that we would be careful to worship the Lord Jesus this Christmas. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for this great story. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to take your Bible. I hope you have a Bible with you. If you don't, just listen closely. It's fine. Um, And turn to Luke's Gospel and chapter 1. And I want us to begin our service today in this Christmas season, month of December, as we have today the first of three Christmas messages that we'll be looking at to tune our hearts for worship this Christmas I want to begin in Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. You do know that when we turn in the New Testament that we really have just two most specific accounts of the birth of our Lord. One is uh, from the Gospel of Matthew, and it is the perspective on Joseph and, and his encounter with the angel and this revelation that came to him that he was to care for Mary and that uh, the Messiah would be delivered through them. And uh, then also in the Gospel of Luke, Luke the historian, known for his careful research and his detailed accounting of the life of Christ. Luke is also known not only as a historian, but Luke is known as a physician. And sometimes we refer to Luke as Luke the physician. And I suspect that uh, he must have marveled at this incredible birth of our Lord as we're going to focus today on the the mystery the mystery and the, the miracle of Christmas, this virgin birth, and how it applies to us and how to understand it. Let's read Luke's account, chapter 1, beginning with verse 26, and uh, let's just um, begin to, as I said, tune our hearts and focus our minds and allow this very familiar story, almost overly familiar, let's allow it to speak to us anew and afresh again this Christmas season. It was in the sixth month, Luke records in verse 26, that the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. He was sent there to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. 
but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. I think that's a very interesting response, don't you? I mean, she must have been startled and frightened at some level. I think it speaks immediately to the precious humility of Mary in that when Gabriel speaks to her and he says, um, greetings, O favored one. You will receive favor from the Lord. You are highly favored of the Lord. And Mary's response evidently is, me? What's special about me? And I think it's a direct reflection of her humility. Um, She tries then to discern, what in the world is he saying? What kind of greeting is this? The angel Gabriel goes on and he says, Do not be afraid. He can see that he needs to quiet her. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Imagine Mary hearing this for the first time. What? What? And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And immediately in her response, at first we see the natural outflowing of her, just her humble response. Who, me? Favor with God? Why me? Secondly, I don't think what you see in her response in verse 34 is that, It's not, nah, this isn't going to happen. It was, okay, you say it, I believe it. Her question is not one of doubt. It is one of, how will this proceed? What what is going to be the mechanism here? And notice her response. How will this be since I am a virgin? Her astonishment at the at the the response to the angel her respo- astonishment in response to the angel is is a clear defining of her own purity and virginity that how is this going to happen and the angel answered her and he said the holy spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you therefore the child to be born will be called holy and the son of god And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month, with her who was called barren. So another astounding birth, pregnancy. Now verse 37 is key to the whole Christmas story and to this passage. And I also want you to notice how once Gabriel states verse 37, Mary immediately surrenders to the will of God. For nothing will be impossible with God. It's like Mary has no more information than she had a minute before other than the reality that this is going to be a work of God. And Mary said, Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Is that a precious response? Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Now let it be to me according to your word. I just say, wow, wow. You know what? It occurred to me that there was a story that was very familiar in the mind of Mary that perhaps uh, this is extra biblical Van Marceau thought. So it may not be worth much. You can stop taking notes. 
that there was another story about another remarkable birth that evidently, I think, rang a bell. And I think it's verse 37 that must have tripped the memory so that Mary in her mind would have gone back to the most familiar of historical accounts that she knew of her people Israel. And that is in Genesis chapter 18. And I want us to repeat verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. You see, if you agree with me, let's go to Genesis chapter 18 and let's look at another most remarkable birth and another statement that was made by the messenger sent from God. Uh, this messenger is likely to have been the second member of the Godhead, the one that would now be placed in this act of overshadowing of the Holy Spirit in an embryonic form in Mary herself to take on human likeness, go figure. It is a remarkable, mysterious miracle. This is the story of Abraham and Sarah. Do you remember them? This is the father of Israel. This is the father of the Jewish nation. This is the one that, that God took outside at night out of his tent and told him, Abraham, look up at the stars. And when Abraham looked up at the stars, he saw all the stars. And God said, Abraham, I'm going to tell you that out of you will come descendants that will be more numerous than all of the stars of the sky. And do you remember why Abraham hiccuped right here? Because he was an old man and Sarah was an old woman. I'm talking about, you know, way old. And I'm tempted to comment about my senior coffee and everything that I get. I know that I'm well in the chute on my way to being there one of these days. Hebrews 11 says, and Paul says about, comments about this in, in Romans as well, that they believed in faith that God would do what he was going to do. They didn't understand it either. And it says there that their bodies were as good as dead. So that helps us understand how stunningly remarkable their response was to being told, you're going to have children. Let's read a little bit about it. It is pretty funny, and Sarah actually laughs. Verse 9 is where we'll jump into the story of Genesis 18. And they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife, to Abraham? The messenger said this, and he said, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, see, this messenger is implied to be... Yahweh himself, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself. <laughs> you got to be kidding. You, you're, you're not, you don't really mean this. Can't be. There are certain things you don't understand. No, Sarah, there are some things you don't understand. And the Lord said to Abraham, well, Sarah laughed to herself saying, verse 12, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And she's laughing and cackling in her old woman cackle. <laughs> the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Here it is. Does this ring a bell? Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
Don't you think it's, we can go back to Luke 1, don't you think it's highly possible that as Mary sat there and she would have been so familiar with the story of Abraham and Sarah, don't you think that rang a bell when when Gabriel looked at her and said, for nothing will be impossible with God. And immediately it tripped in her. Is anything too hard for the Lord? She probably memorized that whole passage. Listen, do you know that we live in a world of skeptics? Do you know that we live in a world of naturalists? You know what a naturalist is? A naturalist is someone who has to have a natural explanation for everything. Do you know that you cannot be a Bible-believing Christian and be a naturalist? The two are contradictory. There are not physical, scientific explanations for all that God does. In fact, that's the definition of a miracle. Do you know that? Webster says a miracle is an extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention into human affairs. That's a miracle. So listen, if you can explain it and you can come up with a reason why it could have happened, it's not a miracle. It can only be a miracle if there is no other explanation than divine intervention into human affairs. So when you pull into this space right up front at Walmart, you think, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. No, it's not. Just a guy pulled out and you pulled in. That's all there is to it. It wasn't a miracle. It wasn't a miracle. But I want to tell you this morning that of all of the different divine interventions in the Christmas story, I am just... Um, I feel overwhelmed with just the stunning pointedness of this incredible miracle of the virgin birth. And so I want to ask this morning, what's the big deal with that? Why did God do that? Now, you're always on thin ice when you begin to try to explain why God does what he does. And you're a humanoid. And if he hasn't told you, you better... Tread carefully. But there are some evidences in the word, and I trust it will be helpful to you because in this world of skepticism, I trust that you're not embarrassed now of the Christmas story. As Christ and the word and uh, biblical Christianity become ever so much more marginalized, Can I continue to encourage you week in and week out not to be embarrassed of your Bible? And don't be embarrassed to quote Luke chapter 1 verse 37. So how did this happen? So how did the Red Sea part? Was there like an earthquake tremor and then the wind and then this and that? And I got it figured out. And how about the walls of Jericho, man? They do like this and that. And I can tell you how to. And how about a fish? Do you know that in 1867, there was a whaler up in the Arctic Ocean in the Bering Sea or somewhere up there. I don't know where. And he fell overboard and a fish swallowed him and he lived for a day and a half. And then they harpooned the fish and they cut the fish open and he was alive. And so the Bible could be right. I say, can I do my favorite character of Christmas? Bah humbug, man. It's like. If you can figure it out, it's not a miracle. And the Bible is filled with miracles. Divine intervention into human activity. And when we come to this virgin birth, we live in a world that is skeptical. 
And I want to give us five reasons why the virgin birth matters today. Five reasons why the virgin birth matters. We could be reversing it and asking the question, why does the virgin birth of Jesus Christ matter? What's the big deal? The first is a logical reason, or you could say uh, even foundational. It's relatively simple, and I don't mean to embarrass your intellect with it, but this logical explanation is as simple as this. It's what the Bible says. Why does the virgin birth matter? Because it's what the Bible says. Can we turn to Matthew's account for a minute and, and let's ask ourselves if, if there's any doubting at all of the virgin birth account. Look at Matthew chapter 1 and begin with verse 18 and, and let's look at Matthew's account from the perspective of Joseph. And I want you to notice with extreme clarity that the virgin birth is once again emphasized in this account. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, okay, notice the detail, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So their betrothal, their engagement, was a contractual agreement. It had legal ramifications in this culture, and in the Eastern culture here, and so it took took legal steps to remove yourself from the agreement. That's what he's saying here. They use the word divorce, this nullifying of the agreement. It says he was going to do it quietly is a statement of the character of Joseph that he would not want to publicly humiliate this girl that he evidently loved, cared about more than just an arranged marriage, but that she would not be shamed beyond what she was already going to have to deal with. He would do it quietly rather than post the news down at the town square with the town crier to cry out with the daily morning news. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, so he's pondering these things, Joseph is walloped, blindsided. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He got to name him. For he will save his people from their sins. Amen. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Listen, to deny the virgin birth of Christ is to deny the truthfulness of the Bible. That's partly why it matters. And I want to tell you the reason I'm emphasizing this, as, which is relatively simplistic. Okay, the Bible says it, and I believe it. And if I don't believe it, and the Bible says it, then I don't believe the Bible. So if you are a Bible-believing Christian, you have to believe in the virgin birth. And if you believe in the virgin birth, you believe in what the Bible says is being true. So there is no human explanation for it. It is the miracle of Christmas. And I tell you that It is interesting that the virgin birth is is one of the key foundational points of attack by apostates. 
that when people who deny Scripture and people who deny Christ want to undermine Christianity or they want to undermine orthodoxy, they will always attack in the area of the deity of Christ. And to attack the deity of Christ, they go at the virgin birth. And the virgin birth is something that is easy to communicate as being relatively bizarre. And therefore, they will question it and they will doubt it. And you will find, and maybe you've even sat in churches where liberal theologians or liberal clergy, really they're apostate. And they undermine the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And, and then they question the very deity of Jesus Christ. And, and then they question the literal nature of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Listen, this is not a new battle. I was thumbing through a book that my father used as a textbook in, at Moody Bible Institute. And there was a significant chapter coming into the, uh, the book was written in the 1920s and, and 30s. And my dad was there in the 40s, right after World War II. And his theology instructor had written this book in a defense and in a sense an apologetic for the Christian faith. Because in the first few decades of the early 1900s of the 20th century, this was all under attack. The deity of Christ was under attack and they were, they were trying to deny the virgin birth of Jesus Christ as one part of denying the very deity of Christ. That's why it matters. Point number one, the logical reason to deny the virgin birth of Christ is to deny the truthfulness of the Bible because that's what the Bible teaches the second reason is a prophetical reason, and we should be in uh, Matthew chapter 1 still, aren't we? And uh, in fact, you might want to mark Luke with a bulletin or something, or Matthew, and we're going to flip back and forth, and we're going to look at a few other passages as well in our study this morning. The second reason why the virgin birth of Jesus Christ matters is not only a foundational logical reason, but it's a prophetical reason. It's a prophetical reason. Number two, uh, we'll save turning to... Um, Isaiah 7.14, because that's exactly what Matthew quotes in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. He is direct quoting from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, he puts in parenthetically, God with us. Listen, do you think that Matthew believed in the virgin birth of Christ? I think he did. Do you think that the prophets foretold it to be true in the life of Messiah? He did. One of the things that, that liberal theologians will try to do is explain away the Isaiah passage or other prophetical passages about the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ because often, as is true in prophetic passages, they have double meaning. But how clear is it that Emmanuel is God with us? And how clear is it that the New Testament writers believed that Isaiah was writing precisely in prophetic fashion about the Messiah who would come. The New Testament writers understood the prophets to be speaking absolutely about Jesus Christ. I think that prophetic fulfillment of the virgin birth, so it, it happened in reality the way that the prophets said, and, and sometimes... And this is how incredible the Word of God is. Um, we think, 
Wow, that's pretty neat that they got it right. You know, it happened, and we look back on Isaiah or Micah and different ones. And that's amazing. They got it right in Bethlehem of Ephrata. And it's, they got it right. No, you know, the Bible is such an amazing book, and the Word of God is so, so living and true that it had to happen because they said it. That's how your brain should look at it. Uh, Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians 15, didn't he? Three times in the opening section of 1 Corinthians 15, that's where he explains the gospel that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and the third day rose again, the first opening six verses of 1 Corinthians 15. And three different times there, you know what he'll say? According to the scriptures, according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures. And we have a tendency to say, ain't that something? They got it right. No, the scripture said, so it had to happen. That's the kind of book you're holding in your lap. I think also, if we, we don't have to turn there, but if we go to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, if you're taking notes, you might note Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. You remember what happened in Genesis chapter 3, don't you? That's where Eve took of the fruit, the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, And then Adam comes moseying along and he affirms the decision and they decide to enjoy and eat in direct disobedience. And and so sin came into the world. And Adam was held accountable. Now Eve was as well. Paul talked about that, limited the responsibilities. One of Paul's arguments for women not leading in the church is that she was the one who took the lead on eating the forbidden fruit. He talks about that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, for example. Do you remember what prophecy took place in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15? He said, it is there that the seed of the woman will be the one whose heel will crush the serpent's head. That was a prophecy. And that was an interesting prophecy because what did it say? It didn't say the seed of the man and the woman, the descendant of Adam will do this. It said the seed of the woman. Listen, one of the reasons that the virgin birth matters is that that's what the Bible prophesied. And it said it would happen, and it's precisely exactly the way it unfolded. That was the first reference to the gospel. Proto-evangelium. Proto, the first good news. Genesis 3.15. That the seed of the woman... That's an interesting concept. Thirdly, I want you to see that there is an interesting historical reason for the virgin birth to be important to us. Uh, this one, I, I, I just thought it was really uh, kind of interesting. It, I don't know how much bearing it has on a lot of things, but I think it's pretty cool. And it talks about, I think what one of the lessons we get out of it is the, even the preciseness of detail in Scripture. If you want to, you can turn to Jeremiah chapter 22 in your Old Testament. And I want you to see the prophecy that was made that put a curse on Jeconiah. He was a king in Israel. And in my Bible, in the ESV, it's translated Kaniah here. And it's in Jeremiah chapter 22. And I want you to see something interesting in verse 30. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 30. We're just interrupting. Um, a judgment that God was putting through Jeremiah on this wicked king. 
And he says, thus says the Lord, Jeremiah says, write this man down. This is Jeconiah. And this is the curse of Jeconiah. Write this man down as childless. Okay, so later on in genealogies, we can prove that Jeconiah had children, but he was to be esteemed as though he had no children. All right. A man who shall not succeed in his days. That's a curse from God, isn't it? Listen, buddy, you're going to be a failure the rest of your life. And none of your offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David. See, he was a direct descendant in the line from Solomon. And there was a promise of the king, the, the king's seat in the, in the lineage of David. David, Solomon, and Jeconiah is in that line. For none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah, period. Bam. Get it? Got it? Good. Done. Boom. That's big when the Jeremiah comes and points his finger in your face and says that. Now look at Matthew chapter 1 and look at the genealogy here of Joseph. Now this is the nuance of the Bible that I was fascinated by and and I just thought I, we would take a minute and, and add this to our list. I think it's important. As you read through the genealogy of Matthew, guess, who you, guess whose name you find leading up all the way to Joseph, to Jesus? Jeconiah. But wait a minute. Jesus is going to sit on the throne of David. That's a promise. That was prophesied so therefore it will happen and so what's the deal here how can jeconiah in verse 12 of matthew's genealogy after the deportation of babylon jeconiah the father of shetiel and shetiel the father of zerubbabel and on it goes down to joseph to jesus how can that be if jeremiah already gave the word of the lord and said none of your offspring will sit on the throne of david because Joseph was a legal adopted father, but there was no bloodline. And there you go. The virgin birth matters once again. And I think that's interesting. A historical note, historical reason how God bypasses the bloodline of Jeconiah and his curse. Fourthly, I want to look at probably the most important part of the detailing of why the virgin birth matters and its theological reasons. Theological reasons. This does get a little bit difficult to wrap your mind around. There's two parts to the answer of the theological reasons. A, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ matters because it makes possible the true humanity of Jesus to be genuine and real without inherited sin from Adam. Let me say that again. Okay? One of the theological reasons why the, vir the virgin birth of Jesus matters is because the uniqueness of this birth, where he did not have a biological human father, but he had a biological human mother, made it a unique birth unlike any other birth that ever took place. And that disruption was God's mechanism for allowing Jesus to be able to be all human and live a sinless life as deity, and yet he was 100% human. Fully gestated, 
embryonic form, all through the stages, nine months, born, Mary holding her creator in her arms. It's an incredible thought. And he was 100% human. He grew and he developed and his voice changed. And in the first service I said, and he began to shave and somebody told me afterwards, Jesus never shaved. <laughs> I don't know, he might have. He was a Nazarite though. I don't know. Ask Shupi. Did Jesus ever shave, Shupi? The Bible doesn't say. And yet, 100% human, so if you're 100% human, then you stand under a covering, a truth about all people everywhere. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8, if you want to look there, if not, just listen, I'm only going to be there a minute. But 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8, listen to what it says. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. You see, the reason is because theologically speaking, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And ultimately, the wages of that sin is death. That's part of why you should wake up and realize what God did for you in loving you and giving Jesus Christ to go to the cross for your sin. And so if you say, hey, I never sin, you're a liar and you deceive yourselves. But guess what? And we don't have to turn there. In John's gospel, chapter 8 and verse 46, Jesus challenges the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And he says, if any of you can find a sin in me, point it out. His whole point was, I am sinless. How could Jesus be all human, born of Adam, born of human parentage, and not be guilty of inherited sin or positional sin. God chose to use this miraculous birth, this virgin birth, to interrupt that. Now often it's understood, and we say this sometimes, we say um, the sin nature is passed down through the male. How many of you women agree with that? The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible does say that in Adam all die, 1 Corinthians 15. The Bible does show us that through the virgin birth, that it interrupted through this special and unique birth, that God used it to identify Jesus as completely human, but yet not guilty of Adamic sin. So I really don't know how all this works exactly. I guess you could ask yourself, are there other mechanisms by which God could have brought Messiah into the world? I guess he landed like a spaceship out in the Mediterranean and got out and been like a Martian guy and stuff. I, I don't know. There's, you can daydream about how would you have done it if you were God to inter introduce Messiah into the world. But this is the way God did it. And one thing we know that God is perfect, so it's the perfect way to do it. I mean, God isn't like second guessing himself. And the fact that we can't understand all of the ways that this works is just not embarrassing to me. Because that's where we are, like where Mary was. How shall this be? Uh, by what mechanism will this take place? What are the mechanics of what's going to cause this? You know what the answer is in Luke 1. Didn't we see it? 
And the Holy Spirit shall overshadow you. That's how it's going to happen. That's the explanation we're given for the mechanics. You want to know the mechanism by which Mary conceived? The Holy Spirit overshadowed her. That's all we know. That's enough, isn't it? I do know it was a literal pregnancy. I also know that in talking about this inherited sin, that you do need to be careful that, that there is um, uh, a large body of people in the world, in a religion, that believe that Mary was immaculate. That there was an immaculate conception, which is actually the teaching that Mary's father and mother conceived her in sinless perfection. That somehow when they conceived her, she was born without sin. They also talk about her perpetual virginity, that she never had other children. That's not what the Bible says. And that her birth canal was never opened or violated in any way. They teach that the birth of our Lord Jesus happened in some kind of a mysterious spiritual C-section. It just came through the uterine wall and there he was. Don't laugh. We believe really funny things too. But that's not what the Bible says. So theological reason part A, why the virgin birth matters is because there is a legal and moral guilt of sin that belongs to all other human beings that does not apply to Jesus because he did not have two human parents. He had God and he had a woman named Mary. And somehow God interrupted all of that. Yes, Mary was a sinner, by the way. Mary held her own Savior in her arms. He gestated in her own womb. You see, 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The second letter B part of the theological reasoning why the virginity of Christ's birth matters is because it qualifies then Jesus to be the second Adam. Somehow, by interrupting the, the human natural birth line of parenting, and this is closely related to letter A here, that the virgin birth makes it possible to be all human and all God without inherited sin. You see, what we do know from Scripture is that every descendant of Adam is guilty of, of his sin. Romans chapter 5 talks in detail about this. Particularly notice Romans 5, 17 through 19, for example. Let's turn, though, to 1 Corinthians 15, and let's look at verses 45 to 49, and then we'll be done with this point and wrap up. And I want to draw one primary application this morning that I trust you will be listening for. Theological reason, letter B, why the virgin birth matters, it qualifies Jesus to fulfill the role of the second Adam. What do we mean by that? Let's look what Paul, in describing two different kinds of bodies, a physical body made of earth and a spiritual body equipping us for heaven. It's one reason why our bodies have to die and be laid in the ground. We were at the cemetery in Brewston Mills, West Virginia, yesterday afternoon at 2 o'clock. We laid a beloved, beloved relative in the ground. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, just like a grain of wheat or corn has to die and go in the ground and it dies out and it changes into newness of life and grows and sprouts, 
Somehow in the mystery and mind and miraculous movement of God, he takes our physical bodies and he transforms them into spiritual bodies. But notice how they are described in this interesting passage. Let's begin with verse 45 in 1 Corinthians 15. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. But the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Who's he talking about? The first Adam is who? Whom? Adam, as in Adam and Eve. Physical Adam. The second Adam, or the last Adam, is whom? It's Jesus himself. And he had a role of being the second Adam, a new Adam. Taking the place of the old Adam who failed in his role. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. So the natural body came first, then the spiritual body will come. The first man was formed from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. This is what qualified him to be the second Adam. He didn't just come from the dust of the earth. He came from heaven as the Holy Spirit implanted him in the womb of Mary. Merged with her body and egg. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. So we're like Adam. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. That would be all the believers in Christ, ultimately. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust. This is great right here. It's hard to understand, but you have to say, Yahoo! Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Praise God. That's a great verse. And I would say, in my limited knowledge and ability to explain it, that the virgin birth is part of the key as to why Jesus could fulfill this role of the second Adam. He wasn't just another man with a human father and mother. Finally, a practical reason. So if you track where we are, we've thought about a logical reason or a foundational logical reason for the virgin birth. It is exactly and precisely what the Bible teaches. And so logically speaking, we cannot deny the virgin birth without denying Scripture, and that would, that's a pretty scary position. Secondly, there are prophetic reasons, and we just touched on one or two. Thirdly, this historical reason, one historical reason is the curse of Jeconiah. That's kind of interesting stuff. Now we've been kind of going on about theological reasons here, the first part of which is it made it possible for him to be 100% human and yet 100% God, this hypostatic union, this amazing reality of help making it possible for him to avoid the legal and moral guilt of sin. And it qualifies Jesus to be the second Adam. Finally, what do we take home on a message like this and how do we practically apply it? There's a practical motivational reason for the virgin birth. And will you track with me for just a second as we think about Luke 1.37. We began there and I want to end there. With God, nothing is impossible. For nothing will be impossible with God, the ESV says. And we tried to point out how Mary immediately surrendered to the will of God when she got that point. So, what is more remarkable and amazing than the virgin birth? 
And isn't it a reminder that our salvation is in all aspects a supernatural act of God? Our salvation is generated by God. Our salvation is initiated by God. Our salvation is planned out by God. Yes, the Bible teaches us that we have a responsibility to respond to information and to his word. But in the same way that humans had nothing to do with the virgin birth, it was completely a supernatural act of God implementing his plan. Don't you, in a sense, see that in a way as, as a symbolic ability of God to give new birth, a miraculous birth to someone who doesn't know Christ? Here's what I'm thinking. What do you have on your list of things that are impossible? I'm going to guess that part of your list of impossible things is that there are certain people that will never be saved. There are certain people that are just lost. In fact, it's possible that you sit here this morning with the reality in your heart that deep in your heart, you actually hope some people don't get saved. And isn't it difficult to watch the headlines and to see wicked, demonically informed people who are the model of cowardice to load themselves up in body armor and bombs and automatic, semi-automatic weapons and go into a room filled with absolutely unsuspecting, unarmed, quiet, calm, peace-loving people and mow them down as though they've accomplished something. And your response has to be, I wish I would have had a chance at them first. I hope they burn in the hottest part of hell. You know, we think in our world today, and maybe even in your more immediate sphere of, of relationships, that there are people that they're off your list. God's not going to save that person. It would be impossible. No. Do you know that for God to move in someone's heart and to regenerate them and renew them and give them new birth in Christ and see them come to the cross and see them ask forgiveness of their sin and to accept the free gift of salvation and have new life in Christ, this brand new birth, that that kind of birth is no less difficult for God to do than the virgin birth. He's fully capable. So who on your list this Christmas can you take off the impossible list and put on the possible list? Who would you begin to pray for? Who might you stop hating? I, I have been concerned about myself as I watch the news and the headlines and the kind of the rage that boils inside you and how long it takes me to get to the point where I remember that my master told me I'm supposed to pray for my enemies. And uh, it's a difficult thing. But you know, we have actually a model in Scripture. We not turn there, but in Matthew chapter 18, for example, there is a story of the rich young ruler. Remember, he comes to Jesus and, and he wants to know how to have eternal life. And, and Jesus tells him, um, well, you know, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And so he does. This is Matthew 19. Jesus says, 
If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He had already told Jesus and argued with Jesus that he had kept the law since he was born, that he was perfect. And, you know, the law is summed up in loving your neighbor as yourself. So when Jesus said, take your stuff and go sell it and give it to the poor, he should have been happy to do that if he truly loved his neighbor as himself. That would have proved that he did keep the law. And so by loving his possessions more than people, he proved that he violated the law and he really didn't love his neighbor as himself. Do you get that? And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, Matthew 8, 19, 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? So what do you mean? Who's going to get saved? And Jesus looked at them, verse 26. Does this sound familiar? Here's what Jesus says. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You look through your list and you look at your world of relationships and you say, who's going to get saved? They're not going to get saved. And Jesus would stand by and whisper in your ear and say, with man, that's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. I think that it's time for some of us to do like Mary and Joseph and just say, okay, according to your word. And to begin to pray for some people this Christmas season who've been on our impossible list and get them over on our possible with God list. Don't you think? I wonder if that could be maybe a big homework assignment for Christmas season this year. Maybe in some new way, some Christmas card message, maybe um, out for coffee, maybe a phone call. I don't know the tenuous nature of who it is and who you think is beyond salvation and who would never listen to the gospel. With God, all things are possible. Would you at least get them on your with God, all things are possible list and begin to pray? That new birth, a miraculous birth, would take place this Christmas that can only be explained by God doing it. Amen? So two things. Number one, will you please not be embarrassed of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ? Would you please not be embarrassed to not be explained, to be able to explain it beyond Luke one thirty-seven? And when somebody with a whole line of PhDs is mocking you, just say... Luke one thirty seven, bud. That's the way it is. And then will you remember that miraculous births are what God specializes in? Who needs new birth on your list? Let's pray. Father, would you please forgive us for having such a limited view of who you are. And in so many ways, being naturalistic Christians, where we often seek natural explanation, scientific explanation, where the real answer is, you just did it. Father, would you grow us in our faith that we would not be embarrassed to live by faith and not by sight. We do look forward to the day when our faith will become sight and all of these things will be explained to us. Father, for those who have someone on the impossible list, 
for new birth. Would you please give some breakthroughs? Would you please open blind eyes, soften hard hearts, create opportunities that we would see some miraculous births take place this Christmas of people being born again. We ask this in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen.